0: Well, what a day we had yesterday. Amen. Just an amazing time and was so blessed. And uh, Terry had asked me to play a part in a couple things. And I was so honored to see this room just packed, the balcony and the bottom floor packed with women who wanted to make sure everybody knew that they're his. It was interesting, too, throughout the day. It kind of stirred something in me that has always been, kind of a point of aggravation. And that is hearing so many times where women had gone to the church and sought help, and they've been told simply to sit down and shut up and just deal with it quietly because the reputation of the church was more important than helping a woman. And there are phrases used like a good old boys club often expressed to the church or about the church and many leaders in the church. And I have heard that so many times from women coming and sitting in my own office talking about how they had been mistreated by the body of Christ. Well, listen, I want to say today, I have no desire to be a part of a good old boys club. As a matter of fact, if I'm going to make a decision, I want to be like Jesus. Because the fact is, Jesus thought it was worthy to go out of his way to meet a woman at the well. And he met with her and he talked with her about her past. And she had... He said something about her husband. She said, I have no husband. And he said, you've well spoken because you've had five husbands and you're living with somebody now. Now, what we need to remember is that in that culture, it was against the law. She was a Samaritan. So they followed and believed in only the first five books of the Bible of the Pentateuch. It was illegal for a woman to file for divorce. So this woman had been abused. She had been set aside by five different men. And her response to her treatment was she was living with a man now. And at the end result of the conversation, when Jesus asked her if she was interested in living water that he alone could provide, she went back to the city and she said, let me tell you about a man. Come meet a man who told me everything I ever did. Well, listen, their conversation wasn't long enough for Jesus to tell her everything she ever did. What he did tell her was everything she ever thought about. And that is how her past had harmed her, how her past had hurt her. And he thought she was worthy of his attention and his affection and his healing. Now, the truth is, Jesus thought there was a woman of whom he had cast out seven demons that she was worth spending time with. Another time, a harlot would wet his feet with her tears and dry him with her hair. And the accusations from the religious people were, if this guy knew what kind of woman she was, he'd have no part with her. Well, Jesus wanted to have a part with her. He wanted to heal her. He wanted to touch her. He wanted to deliver her. And that's exactly what he did. And listen, it was all over social media and uh, other things that have been even mentioned today that there were churches that didn't want to be involved in the I Am His conference because of the subject matter and dealing with something that everybody wanted to sweep under the rug. We're not going to sweep it under the rug here. We're going to help people seek after the Lord and get healing. And listen, I don't care what anybody else thinks. We're going to follow the model of Jesus, not the practices of the church. I did have a sermon to do today, and I guess I better get to that. But we've got another piece of business before we jump in, and that is there has been a call that has gone out to the Church of America on this day to pray for the President of the United States. Now listen, I don't really care what you think about him or what your opinion is of his policies. Uh, I know we all wish that he would get off of Twitter. I know everybody thinks that. But regardless of what your opinion is, the Bible has mandated us to pray for those who are in positions of power, whether they be a king, a prince, or some kind of ruler. So we're going to obey scripture this morning. We're going to answer the call that has gone out from Franklin Graham and others to pray for our president, and we're going to do so right now because he needs prayer. Amen? So would you stand and let's pray for the president of the United States this morning and join believers all around our country in doing so. Father, we are grateful this morning to be in a land that remains free for the most part. Lord, even though we see changes happening in our country, we still are the land of the free. We are still home to the brave. And Lord, we pray for the president of the United States, Donald J. Trump. God, we ask first of all, that if he has not made a decision to follow after you with his whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, that he would do so. And Lord, if he has already made that decision, that you would continue the work that you began in him, even as you continue it in all of us. So Lord, we pray that you would supply to him only that which can come from you, which is wisdom from above, pure wisdom, unpolluted wisdom from human counselors, that you would give him the wisdom to make decisions on behalf of our country and oppressed peoples around the world for their benefit and your glory. We pray also, Lord, that you would give him that discernment that's necessary, that he would be surrounded with wise counselors who have insight beyond that of the human realm. And we thank you for the one that stands closest to him, Mike Pence, who loves you and is unashamed to declare. it. So we pray for our president today. We pray that you would bless him, give him wisdom, give him strength. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that he loves Israel. And we pray that that would continue and not change in this administration. We thank you, Lord, for the country that we live in and enjoy the many benefits and blessings of. We pray you bless our president and we pray it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Normally on the first day of the Sunday of the month, we look at our PowerPoint verse for the month, but it is wonderful and appropriate for all the men and the fathers, especially in the room. So we're going to reserve that for Father's Day in a couple of Sundays. We'll look at Proverbs 21 to seven uh, at that point in time, which includes our PowerPoint verse for the month. So with that said, we're going to continue in the book of Acts. So would you open your Bibles to Acts chapter 18 this morning? Acts 18, we're going to look at verses 1 through 17. Now, I'll remind you that last week we left Paul in what would be considered the think tank of the world at that point in time. And that would be the city of Athens. He was meeting at a place and with a people known as the Areopagus. And they indeed had a rather significant encounter that we examined that some view as unsuccessful. But we looked at it through the lens of a model for witnessing or sharing our faith. Now, our three components for any witnessing effort, whether that be with an individual or a group, were what Paul did. He had audience awareness. He knew who he was talking to. Also, he engaged in the spiritual aspect of any witnessing endeavor. And also we examine the inevitable outcome. Now, remember, Paul was in the city of philosophers. And therefore, he quoted from some of their own poets, Epimenides and Eratus, by name. And he said to them, listen, even the people that you revere recognize that there's some form of power that's higher than us in whom we live, move and have our being. Now, having addressed the audience in a way that he would capture their attention and keep them engaged, Paul then engaged them spiritually by saying, in this city of 10,000, of which it is said, it's easier to find a God than a man, a city of 10,000 people with 30,000 idols, Paul said, you actually have an idol here or a statue erected just in case you missed any deity to the unknown God. That's who I want to talk to you about. As He began the spiritual engagement portion of his witnessing effort. And therefore, we also found that there was an outcome of his endeavor, which is the inevitable outcome, whether it be a personal endeavor to evangelize or a mass evangelism effort. It's always going to be one of three things. Some are going to laugh. They mock Paul, meaning to laugh out loud. Some are going to say, you know, we need to hear more. And this is why Paul made note that some sow seed, others water, but it's God who gives the increase. And some even were saved. And this is what's going to happen anytime. time, that you go to share your faith. So it's the inevitable outcome of any evangelistic effort. Now we had noted that in Paul's travels, he had passed uh, cities like Amphipolis and Apollonia on his way to the city of Thessaloniki. Now, those two cities were cities that needed Jesus just as much as Thessaloniki. Yet Paul, because he was led by the Spirit, he went to places that the Lord was directing him, which would include the city of Athens or the think tank or the hub of the intelligentsia of the world. Now, Paul would say in Romans 8, 14, something that is true today, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of the children of God. And listen, if you're a born-again Christian, the Spirit of God lives in you, and He is going to lead you, and He is going to direct your path. And we, I don't think, always follow His directions, but we're going to learn the importance of that more this morning. Now, when his time in Athens was complete, Paul departed the city of Socrates, uh, Plato, and Aristotle, and he made his way to Corinth, and then we'll find him later in the city of Ephesus. Now, Athens was clearly the intellectual center of the world at that point in time, but Corinth would be the commercial center of the world, not just the Middle East at that time. Now, just to give you an idea of how significant the city of Corinth was, in contrast to Athens, a home to 10,000 people and 30,000 idols. And in 1850, there were only four cities in the world that boasted a population of a million people or more. In 1850, so let's backtrack all the way up into the mid-first century, Corinth was a city of 750,000 people. It was a massive city for those days. And the Lord sent him to the intelligentsia, and then he sent him to the capital of immorality in the then known world. The city controlled the north-south uh, trade route by land, the east-west trade route by sea, and they had invented a way to move cargo over land so that the Peloponnesian uh, Peninsula could be avoided, which was a treacherous 200-mile journey that many ships and therefore their cargo and some of their sailors would be lost, making that journey. So the Corinthians had invented away a land passage, so to speak, to save both man and goods. Now, the city was destroyed during the Roman conquest of Greece in 146 BC, but it was also rebuilt by Julius Caesar in 46 BC. Now, We're going to talk about some things this morning that I think are important to us in recognizing the importance of this city and the age in which we live and the similarities of the time that we live in today. He's dealing with the city of Corinth, and it's interesting that Ray Stedman always referred to the books of 1st and 2nd Corinthians as 1st and 2nd Californians. So there's a lot of things going on in Corinth that are going on in our state today. Now, it was from Corinth that Paul wrote the letter to the Romans. Now read Romans chapter 1 and you'll see clearly that he had Corinth in view when he was talking to those in Rome. The city of Corinth had a reputation for immorality that was so widely known that when someone was being described through an act of immorality or just simply a pattern of life, it was often said that they played the Corinthian. That's how immoral the city was in its reputation in the then known world. Now, we're also going to see that Paul arrived in Corinth with his experiences from the recent past in tow, his ministry or missionary experiences, if you will. He was battling fear. He was battling discouragement. Remember, up to this point, Paul had been stoned in Lystra and left for dead. He was beaten and arrested in Philippi. He was driven out of Thessaloniki and he was shipped out of Berea. And all of this after a ministry split, a very emotional and passionate split with his missionary partner Barnabas over Barnabas' nephew or cousin, John Mark. Now, our text isn't going to strictly or directly state you know, Paul was having a hard time, but it's certainly implied, as we'll see, that the Lord says in a night vision to Paul, do not be afraid. Now, why would the Lord tell somebody not to be afraid? Because they're afraid. We'll talk more about what that means in a moment. Now, this morning, our title, it's going to aid us in understanding our text, is an old adage. We've all heard it. We've all said it. And we're going to use part of it this morning to make our way through the text. And the part we're going to use is this, and you can finish it after I give you the title. When the going gets tough, the tough get going. Well, that is true. That's what the adage says. But that's not always true in reality. Sometimes when the going gets tough, people get afraid. Sometimes when the going gets tough, people fall under discouragement. And Paul was tough. There's no question about it. Remember, he was a man who was stoned and his missionary team stood around him thinking that he was dead. And then all of a sudden he gets up and he goes back into the city where they had drug him out of to stone him. And then the next day he makes a 60 mile hike from Lystra to Derb. Paul was tough. There was no question about it. But Paul, like any of us, needed some encouragement. He needed some encouragement to keep going. And this is what the Lord does for Paul. First, he does it indirectly. And then he directly encourages the apostle. Now we're going to find our usual triad of application points or considerations this morning. About a time when the going is getting tough for you and I. And fear and doubt are trying to creep in. So we're going to find out what to do exactly besides getting going or staying going when the going gets tough for you and I as 21st century Christians. Are you ready this morning? Stand and read with me, please. Acts chapter 18. We'll start with verses 1 through 4 and make our way to the balance of our verses after that. Verse 1, Acts 18. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, and he came to them. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers." And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. And Lord, we ask now that you would add your blessing to your word. Give ears to hear what your spirit is saying to all of us today. And Lord, that we would know what to do in times such as these. Times that it's getting tougher and tougher today. And discouragement and despair often seeks to make its way into our hearts and minds Tell us what to do through these texts and verses today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, it's interesting that an author, an Anglican pastor from the mid-19th century, wrote in a book called Practical Religion, a man named J.C. Ryle, wrote the following words. And he said this, and let me just first say During that time and during the founding of our country, when you see in any of our founding documents, the word religion, it's applying specifically to the Christian religion. It's not religion in general as we see it. So when he talks about religion, he's talking about Christianity. And Ryle says this, a zealous man in religion is preeminently a man of one thing. It is not enough to say that he is earnest, hearty, uncompromising, throughgoing, wholehearted, fervent in spirit. He sees one thing. He only sees one thing. He cares for one thing. He lives for one thing. He is swallowed up in one thing, and that one thing is to please God whether he lives or whether he dies, whether he has health or whether he has sickness, whether he is rich or whether he is poor, whether he pleases man or whether he gives offense, whether he is thought wise or whether he is thought foolish, whether he gets blame or whether he gets praise, whether he gets honor or whether he gets shame. For all this, the zealous man cares nothing at all. He burns for one thing. And that one thing is to please God and to advance God's glory. If he is consumed in the very burning, he cares not for it. He is content. He feels that like a lamp. He is made to burn. And if consumed in the burning, he has but done the work for which God appointed him. This is what I mean when I speak of zeal in religion. End quote. I want to be a man on fire for God. Amen. A person of one thing, one commitment. Overall, And this was the Apostle Paul. He was a man who was consumed by his calling and his mission. And even as he described the many experiences of his missionary's journey, being beaten with rods, a day and night in the sea, in sickness, famine, all these other things, over and over and over again, he finishes the narrative concerning his life experience by saying, and what continually comes upon me is my burden for the church, the advancement of God's kingdom. He was a man that J.C. Ryle was describing some 17 centuries later. Now, the other thing we need to remember is that he was still a man. He was still a flesh and blood human being. Even though he was a man wholly committed to pleasing God and advancing his glory. And we can see a glimpse of this in 2 Corinthians 12, 7-10, to where Paul says, And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of revelations... A thorn in the flesh was given me. Then he describes it as a messenger of Satan to do what? Buffet, constantly harass, constantly seek to hinder, and lest I should be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities. That's what we always do that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in my infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Listen, Paul was a man who had life experiences that he wished didn't happen things that were happening to him personally that he wished the Lord would take away. And yet he came to know and understand that the manifested, manifested grace of God in his own life was sufficient, even when the going got tough and he felt weak. Now, again, our text does not explicitly say Paul was battling fear. His letter to the Corinth, his first letter to the Corinthians, states it clearly. He says, pointing back to our very verses this morning, he says in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 to 3, and I, brethren, when I came to you, as recorded in Acts eighteen one to 17, when I came to you, I did not come with excellence of speech or wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God, for I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. He's pointing back to that buffeting of Satan that he was experiencing. And this is why we will find in the Lord's, exhuta- uh, uh, the Lord's exhortation directly to Paul in our next section. He arrived in Corinth in weakness, fear, and much trembling. Now, fear and trembling is a phrase in Greek commonly used to describe circumstance-related anxiety. And Paul was saying, listen, the things I've been through are getting to me. They're weighing me down. They're becoming heavy on my heart and on my mind. And Paul's anxiety-related or caused circumstances were his previous experiences. And I believe that we could well say the Lord began to indirectly encourage Paul by whom he encountered at his arrival in this city or sin city, if you will, and that being Aquila and Priscilla. Priscilla. Rome, historians tell us, at this time had encountered a rise in anti-Semitism and Aquila and Priscilla were forced to leave their home and move their business to Corinth. And by trade, they, like Paul, were tent makers. Now, we might ask the question, why in a huge metropolis like Corinth, even in that day, would there be such a great need for tent makers? And that is simply because all travel was done by foot cart. Or on the back of an animal, and therefore journeys took longer, and everybody carried with them a portable tent. And this is what Paul, Priscilla, and Aquila made. It was part of every family's travel supplies. They didn't hop on a plane, or they didn't jump in the car and go for a journey. Each day's journey or travels would equate to 25 to 30 miles. Now, the couple shared the same vocation as Paul. There's a point of relatability. But they also shared, to a degree, the same life experience as Paul. Now, Paul would later describe them in his salutation in Romans 16, 3 to 5, where he says, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles likewise greet the church that is where? In their house. They had a house church. Now, Aquila is an interesting name. It means eagle. Priscilla is a diminutive form of the name Prissa. And Prissa was the name of one of the prominent families in Rome. And therefore, she was possibly, some commentators believe, related to the Prissa family. Now, whatever the connection was, she was clearly a gifted woman. And half of the occurrences of her name or the name of the couple, she is mentioned first, which is highly unusual in a patriarchal society. Now, both had come to Christ, either through Paul or prior to their arrival in Corinth, and we don't know which. But what we do know is they were a great encouragement to the apostle Paul in a time where he needed someone to encourage him. Now, it's also interesting that the Roman historian Suetonius wrote in his work, The Life of Claudius, that the Jews were constantly making disturbances at the instigation of Christus. That's what it says in his writing. The Jews were constantly causing problems. There was always trouble surrounding the Jews at the instigation of Christus. Now, most historians believe that Christus or Christus, C-H-R-E-S-T-U-S, is actually a misspelling of Christos or Christ. In other words, what was being said about Claudius is he got tired of the Jews being antagonistic towards the Christians and Christ was causing all this trouble because Jews were converting to Christianity. So he just banned all the troublemakers and Aquila and Priscilla were among them. Now it's also possible that they were actually Messianic Jews at their departure as well. So therefore the Jews would see them as blasphemers as they saw the apostle Paul. Now, this would be another shared life experience being run out of a city simply because of your faith in Christ. And therefore, they would also share the same love of countrymen, fellow Jews that Paul had. I don't have any doubt since the rest of Paul's missionary trip was led by the Spirit that the Lord was orchestrating these events at a time when Paul needed some companionship and remembering Silas and Timothy hadn't arrived at this point in time, but he needed somebody who could understand what he was going through, those who had walked in his shoes, those who had been run out of town because of their fellowship and relationship with Christ and being persecuted for being a Jew, whichever the case was. But what that tells us, And what the Spirit, I think, is leading for us to recognize today is simply this. Here's the first of three things I want you to jot down. Listen, when the going gets tough, say, when the going gets tough, tough. do not let the enemy drive you into isolation. When the going gets tough, do not let the enemy drive you into isolation. Now, Paul could have sat around by himself, grumbling about his experience, but he didn't. And when he arrived in town... Even though his ministry team was not there yet, he found those who were of a like experience, like-minded people. The Lord wanted him in fellowship. So not only was he having exposure to people who had the same experience, he was with them every day. They were making tents together every single day. And on the weekend, on the Sabbath, they were in the Sabbath persuading Jews. Now, to persuade Jews and Greeks means to be convinced by evidence. He was presenting the evidence that Jesus is the Christ, and he still is today. Amen? Amen. Now, the Bible tells us in multiple places and ways that in the last days, the going is going to get tough. And we are given an exhortation about the days in which we live directly from Scripture, and therefore the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, about what we ought to do when the going gets tough. Hebrews 10, 23 says through 25, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. That's the first thing we do. We don't let go of our source of hope. Who is our hope? Jesus. We don't let go of the confession, the proclamation of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Then also let us consider one another and be mindful of each other. And what do we do when we think about one another and encourage one another? We stir up love and what? And good works. More about that in a moment. And then we're told not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, meaning be together as a gathering of believers or go to church, as is a matter of some, but rather exhorting one another so much more. Exhort each other more as you see the day Approaching The day is a phrase that is associated with the tribulation period, the day of the Lord, the time of Jacob's trouble, the whole seven-year period, the 70th week of Daniel. And let me remind you that the great escape precedes the great tribulation. And therefore, when we see the tribulation approaching, that means the rapture of the church is even closer. It's even at the door. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Now, we're told we can see the day approaching. We can see what's happening in the world. And when we do, when the going gets tough, the author of Hebrews exhorts us to hold fast, hang on to what you believe, because God is faithful. Consider one another, stir up love, encourage one another to not only love, but to good works. And don't forsake going to church, you're going to need to be stirred up a lot when the going gets tough, is what's being said. Now, in other words, when the going gets tough, don't let the enemy drive you away from the rest of the flock. I'm sure some of you have seen either National Geographic or A YouTube video where there's a lion or a jaguar or some anybody seen that video where that jaguar grabs that crocodile that's sleeping? Man, it's never mind, we'll just keep. But you know it's interesting when you see a herd of wildebeest running by or some other game animal uh, passing by You know, it seems like, or a zebra even, it's always the one that's meandering on the fringe of the herd, not paying any attention to what's going on around it, that the lion grabs. May I remind you that there is a roaring lion who is roaming the earth, seeking whom he may devour. So what the Lord is saying to you and I in these last days is stay in the middle of the herd. I mean, the flock. Stay in the middle of the the flock. Because the truth is we need to do so all the much, all the more because we do see the day approaching. Now listen, don't let the enemy isolate you. Don't let him drag you away from fellowship. Don't let him drag you away from the other important aspects of being part of the body of Christ, one of which we'll discuss in a moment. Now, since Paul's missionary journey had been spirit-led all along, so too is it now in Corinth. And the Lord led Paul to others who knew what he was going through, who knew what he was going through as a Messianic Jew, who knew what it felt like to get run out of town and also share the same vocation. So God had indirectly sent encouragement to Paul at a time when he needed it. That's what church is for, at least in part, to encourage one another to love and good works. When the going gets tough, do not let the enemy lead you into isolation because that's not something the Lord will ever lead us to. Look at verses 5 through 11. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles." And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justus, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. Now, the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Excuse me. Do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you for I have many people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. So now Paul's ministry partners arrive in the city of Corinth. And there's a couple of things that they brought with them that Luke doesn't record. One of them we can find through 1 Thessalonians 3, 6 and 7, where Paul says, but now Timothy has come to us from you, from Macedonia, and brought us the good news of your faith and love. And that you always have good remembrance of us or fond memories of our time together. Greatly desiring to see us as we also see to you. Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. Then in the second letter to Corinth in chapter 11, verse nine, Paul would say, and when I was present with you and in need, I was a burden to no one for what I lacked. The brethren who came from Macedonia supplied... And in everything, I kept myself from being burdensome to you. And so I will keep myself. Silas and Timothy on their arrival brought good news from Thessaloniki. The church is doing well. The church remembers their time together and thinks of it fondly. And then we're told that a missionary offering from Philippi also arrived. So Paul was free to move away from tent making and exclusively preach the gospel. And then you add to that, Simply the arrival of Silas and Timothy, and Paul was being encouraged more and more. Silas, a faithful partner, Timothy, whom he often referred to as his son in the faith. Now, verse 5 says... When they arrived, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. The English Standard Version has a bit of a better translation, if you will, where it says when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word. In other words, he became a vocational minister in the city, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. Now, as soon as Paul committed a full-time preaching, the Jews opposed and blasphemed him. And the scene became a repeat of past experiences. And Paul says to them, the Jews that is, what Ezekiel wrote up. In Ezekiel 3, 18 and 19, the Lord said to and through the prophet, when I say to the wicked, you shall surely die and you give him no warning nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life. The same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Yet if you warn the wicked and he does not turn from his wickedness nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity. But you have delivered your soul. And this is what Paul is saying. I told him that Jesus was the Christ and the only way to be saved. And therefore you've rejected me. So I'm shaking up my garments free from any residue from you, free to move on. And I am clean. In other words, he's saying, I'm not guilty of your blood. Should you perish in your sins? Now, Paul had spoken boldly, he's spoken truthfully to and about those who opposed him. And even though Crispus, the then ruler of the synagogue, who obviously was immediately fired, as we'll see in our last section, even though he and his whole family got saved, even though he had moved into the house of justice, one who worshiped God, Paul obviously was thinking about the things that had happened to him before. What happened to him before? By way of reminder, Acts 14, 19, the Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. That's what happened in Lystra. In Acts 17, 5, we're told the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace, gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, where Paul was staying and sought to bring them out to the people. So here is Paul having been stoned by the Jews, beaten and arrested by the Jews, had the home he was staying in, attacked by the Jews, and now he's staying in the home of another Christian brother right next door to the synagogue of the Jews. So Paul obviously needed some encouragement. The Lord spoke to Paul in a night vision, not a dream, but a night vision. Paul was awake when this happened. Now, the Lord told Paul, don't be afraid and don't keep silent. He says to Paul, I'm with you. And no one is going to attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. He says, I have many people in this city, implying that the Lord is going to save many in this city through the missionary efforts of Paul and the team. So therefore, Paul stayed for 18 months teaching the word of God in Sin City, so to speak. Now, here's where this brings us to our second point of application. When the going gets tough, say, when the going gets tough. When the going gets tough, do not allow opposition to stop you from serving. When the going gets tough, do not allow opposition to stop you from serving. Now, I have to say, this is more relevant in our day than any other, including that of Paul's. And I say that for one reason. We need to remember the wisdom of Abraham Lincoln when he said, don't believe everything you read on the Internet. Some people seem to think Google is some kind of theologian, and he's not. Or it's not, I should say. Paul didn't have people all over the world with a smartphone who could readily attack him for anything he said. And believe me, people will attack you all over the world when you say something about or for God in an online situation. I can bear witness to that. Just happened I was called a demon over the weekend for doing an interview with Jan Markell and somebody commented on YouTube that uh, she doesn't know what she's talking about and I don't know what I'm talking about and we're both demon possessed. And I said, that's what you are, but what am I? Like a mature pastor, that's how I engage them. Listen. The opposition against us today is louder and greater than ever before simply because of the ability to communicate today that is distinct from all other points in history. And we need to do what Paul did when he arrived in Corinth. He came preaching Christ and him crucified. He would later write to the city of Galatia in 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. Here's the object of his faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul was the man that J.C. Ryle was writing about. You and I can be such a person as well. A person committed to one thing, the glory of God in his name. Now listen this morning. Are you ready? Listen. When they call you intolerant, keep preaching Christ and Him crucified. When they call you a bigoted hater, keep preaching Christ and Him crucified. When they call you a fool for believing in creation, keep preaching Christ and Him crucified. When they deny the inspiration and infallibility of Scripture, keep preaching Christ and Him crucified. Do not ever let opposition keep you from serving the Lord. The Bible says very clearly that there's going to be a departure from the faith in the last days, a defection... From truth, That's what the word apostasia actually means, to defect from the truth. And therefore, in the last days, as it was in the days of Noah, there's going to be a remnant church. Even though, even as there is a remnant of the Jews who are going to be saved during the tribulation, believing Jews who come to faith in Christ and look at him whom they pierced and mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And listen, I believe the Lord is saying to the remnant church today, do not be silent about Jesus, keep preaching Christ and Him crucified, because there are many more that He wants to save. God today is yet unwilling that any should perish, but that all should come to what? To repentance. It is so strange the things going on in the church today. So many bizarre things. I don't even know how people arrive at some of their conclusions. Listen, if you mention repentance today, there are those within the church who accuse you. of preaching lordship salvation. In other words, if you don't serve the Lord, if you don't repent from sin, you're not saved. Well, listen, the very first word that came out of Jesus' mouth when John the Baptist had been arrested, he picked up the same sermon line that John the Baptist was preaching, which was Repent. repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Listen, repentance doesn't save you. Repentance is what the saved do. I believe the church needs to remember today that faith comes exclusively by hearing the word of God. And it's the devil who wants the church to stay silent about Jesus and him crucified. It's the devil who wants us teaching topical sermons in church that have nothing to do with the cross or the blood of Christ, which has the power to save the human soul. It's the Bible that wants the church, or it's the devil that wants the church telling stories instead of teaching the Bible. It's the devil who wants to get us off point because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word, Word of God. If he can silence the pastor from teaching the Word of God, the pastor's message has the inability to say because it's not from the Lord. God wants us preaching Christ and him crucified. And he sends Paul into Corinth, the Las Vegas of the day. And Paul says, listen, I was freaking out when I got there because I'd had so many things happen to me. But the Lord strengthened me and I came preaching. But one thing, and it's the thing that always causes the trouble, and that's Christ and him crucified. And listen, it may be causing trouble today, but we keep preaching Christ and him crucified. We do not stop serving the Lord because opposition comes. Remember I told you about Nehemiah? When Sanballat, Tobiah, the Ammonites, the Ashdodites, all these people were rising up against what God had commissioned him to do, which was to rebuild the wall and hang the gates of Jerusalem. And this group came to him and said, "Hey, let's have a meeting on the plains of Ono." And Nehemiah said, "Oh no!" <laughs> I'm doing a great work. Why should I come down and talk to you? Let's of the course today. Keep preaching Jesus. Keep telling people he is the only way to be saved because he is the only way to be saved. Now, <coughs> I think we need to take Billy Sunday's attitude. A great preacher who preached to over 200 million people without the aid of a microphone. How many have ever heard of the phrase, hit the sawdust trail? Ever heard that phrase? It used to be common. Many people heard it. And it was a reference to coming to faith in Christ. And that's because when Billy Sunday would preach sometimes nine times a day in arenas that seated 16 to 20,000 people, sometimes he'd preach nine times a day. Do you get that? The 16 to 20,000 people at a time. It's full every time. And the floor of these tabernacles were always covered with sawdust. And when you came to faith, you hit the sawdust trail. You walked forward. And every person Billy Sunday led to Christ, he shook their hand. Listen to what Billy said. He was talking about fighting the enemy. And he said this, I'll kick the devil until I have no foot. I'll punch the devil until I have no fist. I'll bite the devil until I have no feet. And when I am footless... Fistless and toothless, I'll gum him until I go home to glory. Listen, when opposition comes, keep preaching Jesus, keep preaching Christ and Him crucified. It's almost time to dinner uh, for dinner, so I better better keep going. Let's look at twelve to seventeen real briefly. Brief is Greek for a half hour. Just kidding. Now, when Galileo was the proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, this fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But if it is a question of words and names and your own law, look to it yourselves, for I don't want to be a judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler Crispus' replacement, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. He was the one who stirred up the opposition to Paul. But Galileo took no notice of these things. Now, think about what just happened. Think about what we just read. The Lord spoke to Paul through a night vision and told him not to be afraid or keep silent because nobody's going to hurt you or attack you. Then he gets arrested. The Jews in one accord drag him off to what's called the Bema seat, where he would stand before Galio. And this clearly tells us that what had happened previously to Paul was what was on his mind. It was, here we go again, or deja vu, all over again. The Jews rise up in one accord as they had in previous cities. Paul goes and is trotted off to stand before the judge in hopes of having him imprisoned or beaten once again. The judgment seat is called the Bema seat. The same type of uh, verbiage used to describe when the Lord judges the saved for their works done for his name's sake. Now, let me show you a picture. There's two people in the way. I, I don't know who they are. They look familiar. but This is in Corinth. And the little placard on the wall says, Bemisi. This is where Paul stood. This is exactly where Paul stood. This is the judgment seat that Galileo would sit on top of in the little divot you see. There in the stone, there would be a seat there where the proconsul would sit and he would render verdict. And of course, they wouldn't have their back to the wall. He would have been facing the wall. And this is exactly where that happened. This is where Paul was brought before Galileo and he was judged. Now, the accusation against Paul was interesting. He persuaded people to worship God the wrong way. Boy, I'm glad we don't have any arguments over worship today. I'll just leave that right there. Now, you have to be wondering what was going on in Paul's mind. Now, we don't know when, but clearly soon after Paul's vision, he's arrested. He's standing before Galileo, and he was brought there by the same group that Stone beat and arrested him and harassed him and chased him from town to town, the Jews. Now, I'm sure that all of us have had a moment or two in life where we said, you know, Lord, your word says this, but my life experience says that. He promises, this, and, and then now this is happening to me. Things aren't quite lining up. And just as Paul is about to open his mouth in his own defense, Gallio speaks up, the proconsul or deputy of Corinth, said not to him, but to the Jews. This isn't a matter that I'm concerned with. Now, Gallio was from a rather illustrious family himself. His father was the elder Seneca. His brother was Seneca the Stoic, and he was the tutor of Caesar Nero. His nephew was a famed poet named Lucan. So this was a, a premier, a man from a premier family within the Roman Empire. Now, he became proconsul of Achaia in AD 51, and extra biblical writings or secular historians record that he was kind of a amiable, he was a nice guy. He was witty, he was even described as a lovable person. And when the Jews tried to charge Paul with doing things wrong, Contrary to the law, Galio replied that he's not concerned about Jewish law, and this was no matter that he should be tending to. Now, this was significant because Paul, after what the Lord said, after what Galio did, he stayed there 18 months, and many people came to Christ. Now, it's interesting that Paul's benediction to the Romans seems to have the Corinthian experience as inspiration behind it, as Paul, writing from Corinth, says to Rome, now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations, according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith, to God alone wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Somebody say amen. amen. So he saw that the gospel was prospering The prophetic word of the scriptures was being made known. He was obeying the commandment of the everlasting God to tell people about how to be saved. Now, this city was home to the temple of Aphrodite. The Romans would call her Venus. It was on top of the Acro-Corinth, Acro, like we've heard, the Acropolis. The polis means city, Acro means high point, the high point in the city. So he was uh, on top of the Acro-Corinth, the high point of the city of Corinth, was a temple to Aphrodite. And every night, a thousand temple prostitutes would go down into the city to ply their trade. It was in this city and in that setting that the Lord said to Paul, don't be afraid and don't be silent. I'm going to save many people in a messed up, goofed up, immoral city. There's hope for California. Amen. Amen. There's hope for California. Now listen, here's our final observation. I'll let you go. Listen, when the going gets tough, say it. When the going gets tough, do not let the world tell you what you can preach. When the going gets tough, do not let the world tell you what you can preach. Now, all three of our points have been packaged as directives. And as with every directive given in Scripture or, else why, or otherwise, we have to decide whether to do or not do what we're being directed to do. Now, when the going gets tough, we can let the enemy drive us into isolation. It happens with Christians all the time. They pull away from the church. They go into hiding. They don't want to talk to anybody. They quit reading their Bible. They do all kinds of things that are all not good for their personal spiritual health. Or we can keep from serving. Say, you know what? After what happened to me, I'm not going to serve God at the church or anywhere else for that matter. We can even let the world, and this is what's happening today, tell us what we can preach. Many today are trying to basically remove anything that the Bible says about morality. Whether it be from 1 Corinthians 6 or Romans chapter 1, the world is moving to a place where it's trying to tell us what to preach. But listen, we need to do what the apostles did when they were arrested and they were warned and reminded, did we not tell you not to preach in this man's name, meaning Jesus? And they said, we ought to obey God rather than men. The same is true for us today. We ought to obey God rather than men. Amen? Amen. Now, last thing I'm going to mention this morning, maybe. <clears throat> there was an ancient story about a man, a general actually named Leonides. And he was a hero when the Spartans defeated the Persians in their efforts to invade. He degre- uh, defended Greece. And it was a battle with thousands of invaders. And one of his generals, uh, uh, one of his men rather, came to him and said, General, when the Persians shoot, shoot their arrows, they're going to be so numerous that they will darken the sky. And Leonides said, Well, then we'll fight in the shade. And listen, it doesn't matter how dark it's getting in our culture today, we keep fighting. We don't change our message because the world tells us what to do. We don't change it because it's unpopular. We don't change this because it creates opposition. We keep preaching Christ and Him crucified. And listen, the arrows or fiery darts of the enemy are so numerous today it hangs like a cloud over the church today. So what do we do? We fight in the shade. We keep fighting, we keep standing for the Lord. And listen, our ministry as a church is to do the work of the evangelist and preach the word. That's what Paul told Timothy. It's not just me that is supposed to preach the gospel. It's all of you too. And the purpose of coming here, according to Ephesians 4, is to equip you for the work of ministry. And the work of ministry is preaching Christ and him crucified. That's what we're here for. And we're here to say, you know what? Sometimes the going's going to get tough. And when it does, don't isolate yourself. When it does, don't stop serving. When it does, don't let the world tell you what you can preach. When the going gets tough and we come under attack for what we believe, we preach Jesus and Jesus alone. And we do not let the enemy tell us what we can do. They're trying to bully us today. If you really want to get down to it, they're trying to bully us into silence. But the Lord says to you, the Lord says to me, do not be afraid. I'm with you. Don't keep silent. Got a lot of people I want to reach before I come for my church. Keep preaching Christ and him crucified and fight the devil until we are footless, fistless, toothless. And then we'll gum him the rest of the way to glory. Somebody say amen. Father, we are grateful for your word this morning. Thank you, Lord, for recording this. A moment for Paul, thank you that we saw the importance of having others around us who are like-minded. We saw, Lord, that you are a participant actively in encouraging us as you spoke to him in a night vision. So too, you speak to us through your word and by your spirit. And we thank you for these exhortations we've received today. May we take them to heart because the going has already gotten tough and we need to keep going to the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Help us to be obedient to that and help us to be the type of person J.C. Ryle described, a person of one heart and one mind, committed to one thing, and that's serving you and bringing you glory. Help us to be that, Lord, because our flesh is going to reject it and fight against it. But thank you that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. We give you praise and glory this morning. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Jesus is coming soon.